We turn again to the book of Titus this morning where we have good hope to find guidance from our Lord that will strengthen our church more and more against the attacks of our enemies. And before we do that, I just want to ask the question, why would we open the Bible and hope that it would give us good guidance that would strengthen us together? Is that audacious to think that we have something we can rely on there? Well, the reason we can do that, the reason we do this every week, the reason we're looking at this book now, is because the God who saves us also gathers us together like this and guides us all the way to the end. When Jesus saves us, he is not like when a lifeguard saves us. If a lifeguard saves you as you are drowning, brings your body back to life, you're on your feet again, then you're free to go, and you may never see that lifeguard again if you choose not to. Jesus does even more than that good lifeguard would do. Jesus not just saves us, but he guides us then for the rest of our lives, all the way to the heaven that he has prepared for us. He gathers us together like this every Sunday so that we can learn from his word and be guided by him. You know, the scripture says that if the God who was willing to save us when we were that rebellious against him, I mean, some of us were filled with just verbal hatred for him. Some of us filled with physical hatred for his people. All of us resistant to his word, resistant to his teaching, unwilling to give him the worship that he was due. If we're in that kind of a state, and when we're like that, he's willing to not spare his own son, but give his own son for our sake to earn our forgiveness for us. If he's willing to do that when we're that low, how much more will he do now that he's saved us? How much more will he guide us together? and give to us the great home he has prepared for us one day. So this is the good shepherd just shepherding his flock every week through his word. Now, there may be a few of you here who do not place your trust in Jesus, who do not call out to him to save you. And I want to call to you right now. Turn to him. Trust him to save you. You need to be saved. The greatest problem in your life is that you have rebelled against God and he knows it. The God of the Bible is there you need to be reconciled to him. The only way to receive that is to put your faith in Jesus who has earned forgiveness for you by dying in your place on a criminal's cross, bearing shame, scoffing, and many other things that we deserve. Turn and put your trust in him. The rest of us, let's all together just remember how good his word is, how good he is to guide us, and that that God who saved us now will guide us and leave us all the way home. Let's turn to Titus chapter 1. We'll start at verse 5, and we'll read all the way through verse 9. Today's verse, though, is verse 6. So we're going to read the whole paragraph once. Then we'll go back, and we'll read verse 6 again, because that's today's verse. Where we hope to find guidance here is this. One day, I don't look forward to this day, but one day, our church will have to choose a new pastor. And I hope that one day our church chooses other pastors to stand alongside me and shepherd you alongside me. But even if we don't do that, one day God may call me somewhere, though I ask him to keep me here for a long time, or I may retire eventually, or I certainly will die if Jesus doesn't come back first. And we will be put in this situation where a new man will be called upon to lead us. And we will wonder, you will wonder in that day, will we prosper under this man's leadership? Is there any way we can just have some indicator 
that maybe his leadership will bless us or won't bless us. There's somewhere we can look and see, okay, that tells us his leadership will probably bless us. There is somewhere that we can look and we will find it in verse six today. Let's read the whole paragraph together first. It says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. That's the paragraph that today's verse sits in. Today's verse is verse 6, which I'll read to you again. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. The words of the Lord. So we have here in these words, three measurements that we can apply to any man who aspires to the office of pastor. We can use these three measurements to find if he is blameless and therefore able to pastor and shepherd a church. Through these words, God guards us against worldly expectations that we are tempted to place upon our leaders and he keeps us from appointing the wrong men. Let me outline the whole paragraph here. I hope to, if God gives me the breath, to give to you four sermons on this paragraph. This is the second one of them. The whole paragraph works like this. Uh, Paul has left Titus on the island of Crete to bring immature churches to maturity, or as he says it, put what remains into order. And in verse 5, which we looked at last week, uh, we saw him say uh, he should bring them to maturity by appointing elders in every town. So multiple elders in each of these churches. He will later call these elders overseers, and elsewhere in the Bible, they're called pastors. We use the term pastor, so he's saying there, appoint multiple pastors in every town, uh, as he was directed to, to bring those churches to maturity. That was verse 5. But here's the difficulty with that. That doesn't work if you appoint the wrong men. You can have the right structure and the wrong men, and it doesn't work. In fact, I would rather have the wrong structure and holy men of God filling it, than the right structure and wicked men filling the offices. And so Paul spends even more time outlining what the criteria are for these men that are to take this office of elder, overseer, pastor. And he sums it all up in one question, which we see in the beginning of verse 6 and again in the beginning of verse 7, is he above reproach? You see that in the beginning of verse 6, if anyone is above reproach? Repeated in verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. That's the main criteria. He's got to be blameless. He's got to be above reproach. We'll talk about what that means in a moment. He then gives to us three measurements we can apply to a man to see if he is blameless, above reproach, worthy to pastor a church. And those three measurements, as we will see in verse 6, are his leadership of his family And then in verses 7 and 8, his character, you see many character qualities listed there in 7 and 8, not arrogant, not greedy, things like that. And then verse 9, is he able to teach the Bible clearly? 
So next week, I hope to talk to you about verses 7 and 8, and the following week, verse 9, but today we focus on verse 6. Is he blameless? Does he lead his family well? Now, the main criteria here, again, is, is he blameless? Or your translations may say, is he above reproach? And what this comes down to is if he's a blameless man, you can appoint him. And if he's not a blameless man, you cannot appoint him. It's that simple. It's complicated, but it's that simple. What does blameless mean? What does above reproach mean? Well, it just means that you would not suspect him of any wrongdoing. In fact, if someone accused him of wrongdoing, your impulse would at least be to say, oh, not him. No, no, he's a good man. And God forbid if someone were to prove that he had done something very wrong, that he had abused someone, that he had embezzled money from the church, that he had stolen, that he had murdered, something like this, and it were proven, you would be shocked because you have seen him live. You've seen the way he treats his family. You've seen the way he treats others. And you can tell he is just not the sort of man who would do that thing. That kind of person, the kind of person you would not expect to do wrong when your back is turned to them. That's a blameless man. That's a man that's above reproach. And that is the core criteria for an elder, for an overseer, for a pastor. Is he blameless? Is he above reproach? Now, we don't just get that main criteria. We get three measurements we can apply to. And they relate together in an interesting way. It's very similar to when you go fishing and you want to take some of the fish home to eat it. You got the grill getting warm already and you want to get those fish in the boat. You want to take them back. You want to cook them you reel a few fish in, you're going to apply a whole bunch of measurements to those fish to see if they're keepers or not. How long are they? How much do they weigh? What species of fish is it? Is it a good species for eating? Are there any contaminants in the water? All kinds of questions you ask, right? But you're really only asking one question. Can I eat this fish? If I can eat it without harming myself and harming the species, I'm going to keep it and I'm going to eat it. And if I can't, well, there may be any number of measurements I will use to get there, but I will throw it back because it's not a keeper. Well, evaluating candidates for elder, overseer, or pastor works the same way. There's really only one criteria. Is he blameless? Is he above reproach? But there are three measurements you can use, much like you would measure the length, the weight, and the species of a fish to see, is he above reproach? Can we keep him in the office? Can we put him into the office? And so today's point then is that only a man who leads his family well is blameless and is fit to pastor. To put that point negatively, a man who does not lead his family well is not above reproach and is not fit to pastor a church. Or to put it from your perspective, if you ever wonder when you look at a leader, is his leadership going to bless this church? Do we have any indication of whether he will guide us to good pastures. When you wonder that, look to his family and ask whether his leadership of his family has blessed his family. So the main criteria is above reproach, and today we focus on husband of one wife. Now we've got to get the above reproach thing first. Because this week, next week, and the week after all depend on that. So do we see then that the main criteria is blameless, and we've got three measurements, family life, character, and the soundness of his teaching to see if he is above reproach. 
All three of these weeks are going to depend on that. So we got to see all three of those things tell us whether or not he is blameless, whether or not he is above reproach. Today we focus on the family criteria. And here's what it says. The husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So again, a man who leads his family well is above reproach and is fit to pastor. Now, before we get into the details of what that means, now the big picture is clear, right? But there are details that we like to debate over because they're not very clear. Before we get to all of that, there is an assumption here. This writer is assuming that we know and believe something that we today do not assume. So I need to back up, lay the foundation of the words, and then we'll talk about what it means. Now, here's what I mean about the assumption. Did you notice that the pastor is accountable for how his children behave? Why would someone be accountable for how somebody else behaves? How could the behavior of someone's children disqualify him from an office. Doesn't work that way with the presidency. Doesn't work that way in many other ways. Why would it work that way in the church? Well, the reason is that as some would deny today, many would deny today, and others would abuse today, uh, when the Lord gives a man a wife and children, he makes him the head of his house. A father is the head of his household. The scripture doesn't teach that a father should be the head of his house. Scripture teaches that a father is the head of his house. Whether he wants to be or not, he functions as head. And when Jesus comes back, he is going to hold the man of the house accountable. How is this family led? How are they walking with me? Do they walk in my Have you taught them my ways? He will ask the father questions before he asks anyone else in the house questions, whether the man has stepped up into the position or not. Now, there are many who would deny or abuse this. There are some on one side who would like to deny any authority structure or any order in society because they see it as a means by which the powerful can abuse the weak. So their solution is just abolish all authority. That way, no one can abuse anyone. That does not work. It leads to a mentality that is all about entitlement, that is all about my rights, my rights, my rights, and teaches us not to love one another, but only to stand up for ourselves and our rights. On the other hand, there are many who would see power as a means to get what you want. And this also leads to entitlement. It also leads to me, 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 except it's the people in power who are saying me, me, me. God's design for leadership is different. He appoints leaders, and the goal of leadership is that the people being led might flourish. That order, that structure, that's a gift to everybody in the family, not just the father, probably least of all the father, because the goal of it is that everyone might flourish. When a leader trembles before God and just sees how great he is and his heart is just shaking, maybe his body is shaking before God, and that leader resolves to walk in all of God's ways and lead anyone that he gets to lead in God's ways, the people that he's leading will naturally flourish. This is what the prophet and king David says in his last words, an oracle from God. And I've quoted it to you before. He says that when a man, lead, he said when a man rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the sun dawns on wet grass. 
Now, grass is made to flourish, right? You put grass in a field, if it does what it's designed to do, you see a bunch of seed in the field, you think of the potential, right? That grass could sprout up, it could grow up, then it could grow out and take over the whole field, but it needs the right conditions to do that. You give it a bunch of weeds, rocky soil, no sun, no water, it's not going to do that. But if you moisten the soil, if it's wet, and the sun shines down upon it and the weeds are kept away, you'll be firing up your lawnmower because that grass is going to grow. The grass can reach its potential when it's placed in the right environment and the right conditions. That's the sun shining, that's the water and the dew on the grass. People work the same way. We're made in the image of God to flourish, to reproduce, make babies, to turn dirt into technology and farms and all these amazing things that we do. That's the potential that God has given us. But we don't flourish unless we're in the right environment. What's the right environment? Living under a just and God-fearing leader who stops people from oppressing each other, stops people from ripping each other off and cheating each other, but leads in justice. When that leader trembles before God and resolves to walk in all of God's ways, everyone that they touch is blessed. That's what David's saying when he says that. One of those structures is the home that God has given. And he appoints fathers to lead their houses. And the father's job is to tremble before God in awe and wonder at this amazing God who is worthy of every instant of our worship and has saved us and so much more to marvel for him, to walk in all of his ways and lead his home, teaching his home the way of Jesus. When he does that, let's turn together to Psalm 128, and we'll see what happens when he does that. Psalm 128, I'll read the first four verses, three and four are the most important to the point. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat of the fruit of the labor of your hands, shall be blessed, and it shall be well with you. And here's the point. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. You see the connection? A God-fearing head of the house. What happens? Those children flourish. That wife flourishes. A wife who is led by a husband who loves Jesus, who she sees reading from the Bible every morning, every night, who she sees in prayer constantly, who leads her tenderly, who loves her as Christ loves the church as he is commanded to, who cares for her every need, who works hard to provide for her. Can you see how a wife in that kind of scenario is bound to flourish? The environment has been created for her to reach her full potential and to flourish. Children who are raised by a godly father who loves Jesus, who wake up in the morning and see their dad reading his Bible, who go to bed at night and see their dad cracking back open his Bible, who are disciplined lovingly by a man who has self-control, is not disciplining them out of anger, but out of love for them, whose father opens the word with them every day and teaches them from the word, who guides them in truth and in righteousness, who provides well for them. Can you see how the environment has been created for the very best that is within those children? to come out, for them to flourish, just like the sun brings out the best in the grass when it is moist. A God-fearing head of household will bring out the best 
in that family. So if that's true, if the, if the father or the husband is the head of the house, and when he fears God and walks in the fear of God, the people he leads will flourish, Titus 1.6 makes all the sense in the world. If he's fit to pastor, he must be the husband of one wife, children, either believers or faithful. We'll talk about which is the better rendering of that word in a minute, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. In other words, if his children are wild and out of control, in some way there is a lack of fear of God in the home, and it starts with the head of the household. And so we know then that that man's not ready to lead the church. Perhaps the Lord will grow him. Perhaps he will be ready to lead the church, but he's not above reproach yet. He's not blameless. He doesn't live in the fear of God yet, or we would be seeing a different thing in the house. So that's the big picture. If his leadership of his family is godly, if he is a good husband with good kids, that's the big picture, then he's a blameless man. He is above reproach, and we should consider him to shepherd our church. Big picture is nice. It's really inspiring. Brings gives me a lot of energy to lead my own home. I hope it does the same for you, fathers, wives of godly husbands. I hope it makes you rejoice that your husband is like that. A lot of fun we can have there in the big picture. But there are details that are unclear, that we will have to wade through together and ask, what exactly do these things mean? And that's where we turn our attention next. What does husband of one wife mean? And when my translation, at least, says that his children must be believers not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, does that mean his children have to be Christians? Is a man disqualified from pastoral office if one of his children has not come to Christ yet? What does that mean? Those are the details that people, we have argued as a church for centuries over this. Some of them are clear. Some of them are not clear. And I will do my best now to turn our attention to them, look at the text, see what they say, and give us as clear an answer as we can find as to what these things might be. So first, husband of one wife, what does that mean? There is strong evidence that it means one particular thing. But this is one of those cases that is not 100% clear. I could give it maybe 90% clarity if I were to just judge on my own, but not 100%. And that puts the church in quite a fix that we aren't quite able to tell what it says. Here's the root of the problem. If, if we had not sinned at the Tower of Babel and the Lord had not confused our languages, it would be much easier to read and understand God's word. But as it is... This was written in the language of Greek in the first century, this New Testament. And even with some of the best translators in the world, there is still some uncertainty as to what the original authors meant. And this is one of them. In this case, the word in the Greek language for wife and the word for woman is the same word. And so when you see wife or woman in your New Testament, it, usually it's pretty clear which one he means. But it's never 100% certain because it's the same word. You can't tell from the word alone. In the same way, the word for husband and the word for man were the same word. Uh, a, a husband and wife were just a man and a woman in the Greek tongue. That's how they did, a man and a woman. And so as we read husband of one wife or man of one woman, from just a language perspective, we really can't tell which one he means. He could mean... A candidate for pastor has to be the husband of one wife, which could mean a number of things. Or he could mean that a candidate for pastor has to be a one-woman man. And you know what that is. A man who's faithful to his wife, 
man who's not given to immorality, and our day and age is not looking at pornography, is not falling to fantasy, a man who is faithful to his wife. That's the kind of man he's looking for. If he means one woman man, that's what he means. But if he means husband of one wife, he could mean a number of things. He could mean a man who has only had one wife in his lifetime, never remarried after the death of a spouse, and has married. So that would eliminate men who have never been married. That would eliminate men who were once widows who God has given another wife to. It could mean that. I don't think it does. I'll tell you why later, but it could. Or it could mean that men who have been remarried after divorce are prohibited from the office of pastor. Or it could mean that men who are polygamous, men who have more than one wife at the same time, are prohibited from the office of pastor. And which one it is, is not 100% clear. Now, many of you in elementary school were taught what to do when you were reading a book and you come to a word and you don't know what that word means. My fourth grade teacher, Mrs. Sullivan, I can still remember her teaching me, and Mrs. Clark, my fifth grade teacher, would tell me, context clues, right? Look around the word and see if you can find enough clues in there to figure out what that is, and now you know what that word means. Well, that works with the Bible, too. When you get to a spot where you're not quite sure what they're saying, just back up, zoom out a little bit, and see what we've got. And as we look at the context... It does answer some of these questions for us. If the main criteria is a blameless man, it wouldn't follow that Paul would be saying that he has to be married once and only once, right? He wouldn't be saying that a single man is not qualified because he'd be saying that a single man is not blameless because he has not been married yet. That's not biblical truth. Likewise, if it were to prohibit a man whose wife had died and he had married again, well, that doesn't make him any less blameless. In fact, it might be a sign of God's favor in his life. And so with this word blameless or above reproach near to it, we can be almost certain that Paul does not mean to prohibit men who have been remarried after the death of a spouse or men who have never been married in the first place. For men in that situation, we should just ask, what kind of husband would he be or what kind of husband is he to his wife right now? So I think we can rule that one out with with pretty clear certainty. So that leads, is it talking about divorce? Is it talking about polygamy? Or is it talking about just faithfulness and not falling to immorality? Which one is it? Well, to answer that, I look personally to the context of Crete itself, where the letter was written. And we ask, well, what were the problems? What kind of sins did people fall into in Crete that Paul might be writing against and saying a pastor can't participate in this stuff? And when we look that up, what we find is in Crete in the first century, uh, polygamy was not a thing. Men who wanted to have more than one woman in their lives, they didn't use polygamy to get that. And divorce was also not really a thing. Uh, When men, if they lusted after other men's wives and got tired of their own wife, they didn't handle that through divorce. What was the problem in Cretan culture was rampant immorality. In Crete, if you didn't want to go to bed with your own wife that night and you wanted to go to bed with someone else, you just did it. That's how they lived. Uh, Throughout the ages, people used different ways to kind of get the lustful intentions of their hearts. That's what they did in Crete. Things are a little different today. Immorality was rampant. There were many husbands who were not faithful to their wives. And so I think it makes the most sense that Paul would be saying... A man who pastors the people of God cannot do these wicked things that the men and women of Crete are doing. He cannot be falling into immorality. He cannot be unfaithful to his wife. He's got to be a one-woman man. 
So that's how I take that personally. I take that with about 90% certainty that what he's saying here is that anyone who aspires to the office of pastor must be faithful to his wife. That's what he's saying. But here's the thing. That's not enough evidence to say for sure. You can't give that 100% certainty. So it could, there's small possibility that it could be prohibiting men who have been remarried after divorce from serving as pastor. Again, I don't think it is, but it could be. And there's some possibility that he could just be referring to polygamy and just, you know, if polygamy ever comes back in our culture, which I kind of fear it does, that he would be prohibiting that for the office of a pastor. So that puts us in kind of a fix, doesn't it? We've got to make church policy based on a passage that we really can't fully understand. It does not lack in clarity, but our eyes lack the ability to read it and understand exactly what Paul meant. The people in Crete knew what it meant, but we don't. And so what do we do as a church then? Well, for our almost 60-year history, we have had one pattern with this uh, because it probably means that men need to be faithful to their wives to serve as pastor. And we see the same phrase used for deacons in the book of 1 Timothy, so this extends to deacons as well. Uh, because it probably means that, but there is a chance that it may be prohibiting men who are remarried after a divorce from serving. Uh, we have several men in our congregation who are righteous men, blameless men, who are remarried after a divorce, who choose not to serve as deacon in our church. And that's why. Because there's uncertainty here in this verse, and we do not want to risk stepping over the line that God has made. A man does not want to risk serving in a way that God has not called him to serve. And so many of those men, I think I've talked to all of them, they choose voluntarily not to serve as deacons. That's what we do. That's how we handle a difficult passage that is unclear to us. We believe that it prohibits men who are unfaithful to their wives from serving but we admit there is possibility that it could be prohibiting men who are remarried after divorce. While we are there, I do want to comment on that, though, because it would be very tempting to extend the words of this phrase even farther than that. Many churches do that. I think we're maybe tempted to do that, uh, to extend this to a man whose wife had abandoned him, and he chose to stay single for the rest of his life. Well, these words only prohibit, if anything, a man who is remarried after divorce. Not everyone who has divorced in their past. Likewise, they don't see anything about a man who marries a divorced woman. And so we can't take, at least from this verse, any of those kind of prohibitions. If we go that far, we are certainly going farther than this text. And we need to be careful in every occasion not to apply rules to people that the Bible does not apply to them. So if you're wrestling with that, this is one of the texts that you need to look at and think on that. We're all kind of trying to develop our positions on this together. I've talked to our deacons together. We're kind of all trying to figure this out together. My word to all of you is look at what the words say exactly. They may be prohibiting men who are remarried after divorce, but they're definitely not saying any more than that in some of those special cases. That's my word there. Let's move on to the next thing that is a little less clear here. And that is the question many ask of, well, does this saying that a man's children need to all be Christians before he can serve as a pastor? What if his wife has a baby? Do we just have to wait and see if the child comes to Christ and then he can serve as a pastor again? What would we do there if it says believers here? Well, the problem is the same as in the last verse, and the solution is the same as well. This word that is in my translation, his children are believers, it may be faithful in your translation. 
and the reason for that is that the Greek word for believer or Christian and the Greek word for reliable or faithful were the same word. And so when one is used, you have to just look at the context to see which one it is. You don't get a secret decoder ring that tells you which one it is. You've got to put that back in the Cracker Jack box. But you can look at the context and see which one he means. I think the context is very clear here because the very next words answer the question for us. Now, if it is translated believer, that would mean that a pastor's children must be Christians. If it is translated faithful, reliable, if that's what Paul means, that would just mean that his children need to be obedient to him and need to be good, faithful kids. Well, we read on in the verse and we see which one it is. Are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I think that tells you right there which one it is. These are good kids that are faithful to their dad. I take with pretty strong certainty that this verse is not barring a man whose children are not all believers from serving as pastor. For that very reason, what it is calling is for a man's children to look up to him, to be obedient to him, to not be wild, rebellious, to not be living a party lifestyle, to not be into drugs, to not be into alcohol, to be good kids. And that is where we get our big picture from. For a man to lead the church, he's got to be a good husband with good kids. It would also be really difficult, this is not conclusive, but it would be really difficult to enforce it if we tried to say that all of a pastor's children must be believers before he can serve. Because then, well, as I asked before, what would you do if his wife had a baby? Would you just have to relieve him of his duty and wait for several years to see what the child does? And well, you might think, oh, no, 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 wait till they come of age. Well, then what's the age? And how do you decide that? Who gets to decide what the age is? It would be so difficult to enforce if we interpret it that way. That's not alone enough reason not to interpret it that way. I think the context is enough. But we would be getting ourselves into quite a mess if we tried to do that. One last note. This is speaking of men that are in his house. This is about family leadership, right? And so it is speaking of children that are still in the Father's house. The day may come when we consider men in this church for the office of pastor, men whose children are grown and are out of the house. And so what those children are up to 20, 30 years after they left the home is no longer their father's responsibility. He is not the head of the house they live in now. He is the head of his own house. And so as we evaluate those men, what we must ask is, would I be glad if for some tragic reason, my children were in the care of this man's house for two years. Would they flourish in his house? Is he the sort of family leader that I would want my own children to live under? Those kind of, is he a good man with good kids? Does he treat his wife well? This is largely about the character and the blamelessness of the man. So we apply these ideas to some of these unique situations when that's what's going on. So, to summarize the unclear parts, again, husband of one wife or one woman man probably means a one woman man faithful to his wife, but there is a chance that it does prohibit men who are remarried after divorce from serving as pastor or as deacon in other sections of the scripture. And when it says children are faithful or children are believers, I think most certainly it means children that are faithful, good kids, because if he can't lead his children well, he's not going to be able to lead the church well either. The main point is what's most important. Is he a good husband with good kids? If so, then he passes the first test and he's blameless and fit to pastor. 
So if you are ever asking of a man, say a man steps into pastoral role here, we appoint an associate pastor here, the Lord calls me home and there's a new lead pastor here, and we are asking together, will this man lead us well? Is he going to guide us into greener pastures? Are we going to flourish as Christians under this man's leadership? When you wonder that, look one place, look to his family and ask, how has his leadership blessed his family? It's not foolproof, but that is your best indicator as to whether he will bless you as well. Let's turn to pray together and prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper.